and welcome to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Welcome to uh, those of you who are here for the first time or the second time. My name's Ross Gilbert. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. We are um, in the midst of our our study through the life of Abraham. And um, we're kind of trying to discover um, what lessons we might learn from Abraham's life and how that might apply to us. And um, I love studying the scriptures. In fact, it's, it's the best part of my job to, to be able to open up God's word and dig as deep as I can go and, and learn and learn about who God is and his heart towards us and the love that he has towards us. Um, but also, uh, I get to learn something about myself that I get to hold it up as a bit of a mirror or I get to apply it to my life. And, and so I'm um, always excited to get to study God's word. And this week is, is no different. Um, in, in chapter 17 of Genesis, we're discovering more about the covenant that God made with, with Abraham. And as we've been seeing, this, this covenant that God made with Abraham is actually the new covenant. It's, it's uh, what, what came into existence with Jesus dying on that cross. And in this uh, chapter in particular, what we're going to see is Abram's name gets changed. This is where he finally becomes Abraham, as we know. Um, but also the, the command for every male in Abraham's household and every descendant afterwards is to be circumcised. In fact, uh, later on, this covenant, this chapter in Genesis 17 is referred to as the covenant of circumcision by Paul. And, uh, and what I learned about myself in studying this passage is I am too immature to speak on this. (laughs) That I will revert to a 12-year-old boy uh, over and over and over again. And so I apologize because I realize that this is a sensitive topic for some. And uh, it will cut deeper for some over others. (laughs) And it's a topic that has been shrouded in mystery for many. And it's my goal to take the top off of it and cut around all the misunderstandings. And um, I know, I know, it's, now you know what I've been living with all week. And um, so if, if I'm showing too much immaturity on this topic, please raise your hand and let me know and I'll cut it off, all right? I'll nip it in the bud, snip, snip, all right. We should pray. We should pray. All right. All right. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you that we can laugh. Thank you that we can uh, have fun, um, that your word is, is solemn and important, uh, but there's life to it in every sense of the way. And so thank you for that, Lord. Um, but I pray as we look at this passage in particular, um, the Lord, that you would see the power of it, what's really happening, the significance of it. That this isn't just a story that happened to a man thousands of years ago, that this is an account that you've recorded in your scriptures for us today, that it has great freedom and great power for us under the new covenant. And so I'm excited to be able to study it and we're gonna look forward to what you're going to show us. In your name we pray, amen. 
All right, Genesis chapter 17. Um, there's a 13-year gap between chapter 16 and 17. And, uh, and I think that's kind of interesting. It's, it's actually, it's been 24 years since God first called Abraham out of um, uh, Haran into, into Canaan. Uh, in fact, it might've been many years earlier that he actually called him, but it was at age 75 when Abraham finally crossed over into Canaan. But if you think about the 13 years between chapter 16 and chapter 17, a lot can happen in 13 years time. I mean, 13 years ago, there was no new life. There's no dream of new life even. I, I didn't even dream about being a pastor one day 13 years ago. Um, one of my kids wasn't even born yet 13 years ago at this point. Um, some of you weren't married. Some of you have different jobs than you did 13 years ago. Some of you weren't even saved 13 years ago. So a lot can happen in those 13 years. Um, it's a long time. And we don't know if God was completely silent between chapter 16 and 17. I don't think he was, but that's just a guess. Scripture doesn't tell us. But at the very least, I don't think God had a lot to say to Abraham about the covenant between chapter 16 and chapter 17. And, and so he's sort of out of the blue bringing this up. But I just kind of picture that for 13 years, God's been silent on this topic. Can anyone kind of relate to that? Again, we, we want to see action. When God speaks to us, we want to see results right away. And yet at times it's very quiet. It's very silent. And that was the case here for Abraham. And maybe he's wondering, did God, did you, did you forget about me? Did you forget about what you'd promised me? And, and is, is it going to happen one day? What were you speaking of? And so all this is happening. And at this point, Ishmael is now 13 years old. Uh, Abraham is, is 99 years old at this point. Think about that. He's 99 and he's now the parent of a teenager, right? That in itself is a, is a workload. And, um, but I think for Sarah, who at this point is still Sarai, she's had 13 years to watch Hagar and Abram parent Ishmael as a reminder that she doesn't have any kids. So imagine how difficult it would have been for her for those 13 years to have that constant reminder of a dream that's not fulfilled. All right, so let's read in verse one then of chapter 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. So this verse here, this, the Lord appeared, it wasn't just like he got an idea or a thought in his head. God himself in a, in a you know, pre-Jesus form essentially shows up and he speaks to him. And he says to him, I am the Lord God, or I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That, that phrase, God Almighty, is El Shaddai. And, and a lot of people have questioned what was the, the best translation for the El Shaddai, and they've kind of settled on the God Almighty, God All-Powerful. That word Shaddai, is, they believe it's connected to this, the mountain. So you think about the power and the size and the strength of a mountain. And so that's this God, God Almighty, God of all power. And I think God uses that name for the first time here to introduce himself because of what he's about to accomplish, what he's about to do. And so he says in verse two, um, or he says, sorry, at the end of verse one, walk before me and be blameless. Now that, that phrase, walk before me and be blameless, is, uh, is maybe better translated as come stand before me and be blameless or, or be complete. 
or be perfect. That's essentially what that word blameless is, to be complete, to be perfect. So come stand before me and be perfect. Now, please understand that phrase, blameless, complete, perfect, was actually used previously about Noah. Now, did Noah never sin? No. So clearly being perfect, being complete, being blameless isn't about behavior. It's about something else. And so it's not that, that Abram's goal now is to never sin. That's not the goal, but rather there's something be, bigger, something deeper that God is speaking to here. And I think the best uh, picture of that is this idea of maturity. That a child, when they're born, they are, com- they are complete in the essence that they're a male or they're a female and they've got all their, their, their bits and everything about them, but now they're maturing into who they really need to be. That that boy is becoming a man and that, that girl is becoming a woman. And when they, when they reach that, there's completion at that point. They've matured, they've grown. And that's essentially, I think, what what God is speaking to in Abraham's life here is that come stand before me and be mature, grow up, be complete, be blameless. And I think that's that's an important point that what God is saying to him, again, come stand before me and be blameless. Right, Neil, I'm gonna ask you to remember that point, all right? Come stand before me and be blameless. That's because it's gonna matter later on, right? So what's the, the instruction? And no, just be blameless and be blameless, all right? Okay, so that's the invitation that God gives to Abraham. And, and then he goes on in verse two and he says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. Again, we saw earlier that this, this new covenant, the covenant he gives to Abraham is, is I will, God's doing all this. And this phrase, I will, is gonna show up five times in four verses, in verses five, six, seven, and eight. In fact, verses six, seven, and eight all begin with I will. And so this is God saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm going to initiate a covenant with you, which is really mind blowing. For us, it's sort of what we've grown up with. And so we're not surprised or shocked by it. But if you read, um, the, the history books and, and whatever kind of documents are left from the time of Abraham, there was never a notion where, where a God would enter into a covenant with a man, with a human. None of that. They would never do it. They would demand obedience and, and the, the people would offer sacrifices trying to appease that God, but never was there a covenant between their God and a person. Now you would see covenants sometimes between a a more powerful king and a a lesser person, but never with a God. And here we see God for the first time saying, I will enter into my covenant with you. It's mind blowing for Abraham to have this this sense that God is, is willing to, it's unheard of, it's unimaginable in Abraham's day enter in this covenant. Now, for those of you here that were here when we started in Genesis 15, you might be thinking, well, hasn't God already entered into a covenant? Is this a different covenant than what he had in 15? And the answer is not. It's not a different covenant. It's a continuation of that covenant. God is simply expanding on it. He's revealing more about what this covenant is and what it entails. And specifically for Abram, what it means for him and his descendants and their descendants, and their descendants, and their descendants, and their descendants. It's a continual uh, invitation onward for that. And so in Genesis 17 and verse three, we see that, that 
God, uh, Abram's response to this is that he fell on his face, right? He immediately collapsed down and he prostrated himself because he was in awe that the God of the universe would be speaking to him. He's humbled and overwhelmed by it all. And then beginning in verse four, God begins to speak as to what will be his part of the covenant. What will I do, God saying? So he says in verse four, as for me, this is what I owe you. This is, this is my part of the covenant. Behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer should your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations and for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to be your, and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Right, so this is what God's saying. Here's what I'm going to do. First off, he says, I'm going to change your name. And that's going to be important later on, but he's changing his name. He says, no longer will you be called Abram. Abram means great father. He says, now you're going to be called Abraham, the father of a multitude. Think about that. You know, imagine Abram comes out one day and he gathers everyone around, hundreds of men and, and women, and he says, everyone, I want to make an announcement. I'm changing my name. No longer will I be called great father. And people are kind of going, it's about time. You only got one, one child. I mean, you're really, you're a father, but great, I'm not sure. He says, no longer will I be called great father. From now on, father of a multitude. Uh... I don't know if you understand this very well, but that's what God's doing. He's changing his name because of the promise that God's going to do. He says, I'm going to make a multitude come from you. So essentially there's, there's two promises that God gives him. Number one is that this multitude of nations is going to come. Now notice it's not just a multitude, but a multitude of nations. And that's important. And he's not talking about Isaac and Ishmael and them now branching off and creating two separate nations, the Arab nation and the, the Jewish nation. No, no, he's saying through Isaac, because all the promises are going to go and flow through Isaac, a multitude of nations are going to come through you. It's interesting. We're here in Heritage and it's Mission Week and you see all the flags here. And the, the point and the premise is what God's saying is, I'm not asking all of you to become Jewish. It's not all one nation. Instead, it's a multitude of nations. And so we, we re remain having our culture and our heritage, but we're all descendants of Abraham, not because of uh, where you were born or what flag you serve or anything like that, but because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And so there's a multitude of nations. And then he even goes and says, and kings will come from you, which we know has come to pass, right? There was King Saul, who's a descendant of Abraham. And then King David and King Solomon and all the other kings of Israel. And finally, who's the last king? King Jesus. King Jesus is the descendant of Abraham. And so that's what God was promising. And so he's already looking forward to Jesus' coming. So that was the first part of the promise. The second part of the promise was this land of Canaan, 
which again, he'd also promised in chapter 15, but now he's promising it as an everlasting possession to his descendants. How long does everlasting go for? Longer than that, right? It just keeps going and going and going. And, and we saw that this covenant promise isn't for the church, right? There's a spiritual Israel, the, the ones who have faith in, in Christ, who are descendants of Abraham, but there's a physical component to that as well, which is physical Israel. And that land, that physical land was promised to them with an everlasting covenant. And that's God saying, I will do this. But now in verse nine, there's a component that Abraham and his descendants will have to do. So he says in verse nine, God said further to Abraham, now as for you, meaning this is your part in all this. As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout the, their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old should be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, so now it's like, okay, Abraham, here's the covenant, but here's what you need to do in order to maintain that covenant. There's one requirement, and that requirement is to be circumcised. And that applies not just to you, but every one of your descendants. In fact, everyone in your household, whether the slave was bought or whether the slave was born in your household, every male needs to be circumcised starting at eight days old or whenever. There's no, there's no wrong time for that. And, and so that idea here of circumcision was to cut around the foreskin to remove that. Now, circumcision wasn't invented at this point. It was already a, a somewhat common practice in Abraham's day. So it wasn't a new idea. And they would often uh, circumcise males when they reached puberty or when they would uh, get married. And so that was something. It was like a, a, a bit of a bar mitzvah, I guess, right? It was sort of a, a, sh a sign of adulthood. And that's what sometimes would happen for people. And so this wasn't a, a new concept of circumcision. But I think in some ways, it wouldn't even have been that surprising for Abraham. Because when you enter into a covenant, a blood covenant, you would often, it was referred to as you would cut a covenant, and, and so what they would do in a, in a way to celebrate that or to practice it, they would actually cut themselves. Often what they would do is they would, they would cut their forearm, their wrists. And then you would even, they would put the dirt or later on, they would even put like gunpowder and stuff into it in order to create a scar. Because that scar was meant to show something. It was meant to be a display. And that's why they would do that. But you got to ask the question, well, who was this sign for with circumcision? You see, think about it. Today, if, if you see a woman wearing hijab, what do, what do you know about her faith? That she's a Muslim, right? Or, or if you see uh, a man with a, a black wide brim hat with, you know, curls running down each side of his face, what do you know about his faith? He's, he's an Orthodox Jew, right? Or, or you think about nuns or priests and the, the uniform that they, they wear. We kind of know about them. Or, or Buddhists in their orange togas, 
right? Or, or if you see a man wearing a, a burgundy cap with a tassel driving into a really small car, you know he's a Shriner, right? So, so those are outward signs to everyone else. So when you see that, you know something about their faith. And again, that's what those, those markings are to be. They were to be an evidence of a sign of a covenant. But think about with a, with a circumcision, who's it for, right? Because the circumcision is not for the world to see. And I am not gonna touch any jokes on that one, right? I'm gonna let that one just sail right by. But, but it's not for the world. Who's it for? The individual and God which again speaks to the nature of the relationship. It's an individual relationship with God that's required. It doesn't matter about the nation you were born in, who your parents are, you yourself have to have that personal relationship with God. And so with, with my kids, them being born in a Christian household has its advantages, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Each of them had to make that their own choice to trust Jesus. And so that's what this circumcision was meant to be a sign for between the, the individual and God himself, that they were in this covenant. But again, verse 14 came with a warning that if you're not circumcised, you're cut off. I don't know if pun intended or not, but that's the language that Paul, that, sorry, that, that, um, that Moses used when he wrote this, right? And so if you're not circumcised, you are cut off from your people. You are cut off from the covenant because you've broken the covenant. You're in essence, you're choosing to reject God. That's the importance of that. Well, if this covenant then in Genesis 15 and now 17 is in fact the new covenant today, well, that means we ought to pay attention, right? Because that's, that's going to impact some of you. So we're going to do an altar call after and uh, invite the men at the back. And no, we're not doing that. But, but the question is, does every male now need to be circumcised that, are, that name Jesus as their God in the church? This was a big deal in the church in Paul's day. So you think about it, when the church started, it was a Jewish religion. It was a Jewish sect. In fact, that's how it was seen by the Romans, that, that it was just another Jewish denomination, essentially, because it was all Jews, right? All the disciples were Jewish. And the, initial, the original church would have been mostly Jewish, if not all. And over time, Gentiles started to join, starting with Cornelius and others. But then the question was, well, what do we do with these Gentiles? These, these uncircumcised Gentiles, don't they need to be circumcised in order to maintain the covenant? And so in Acts chapter 15, you can turn to it if you want. There's this great debate that's going on that's kind of broken out between Paul and Barnabas and these, these Judaizers, these, these Jewish believers who are... Um, are trying to fight for this idea that if, if they're not circumcised, then they can't be part of the covenant and they need to be circumcised to be, to be in the covenant. So in verse one of 15, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, right? And their argument is valid because of Genesis 17. They got a point to that. But verse two, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. 
This is the the first time the church is kind of faced with a theological question. Which way are we going to go? Do we need to be circumcised or not be circumcised? What is going to happen here? And so they decide to go to to talk to the big guns, to James and John and Peter and, and these now apostles here and kind of get them the way in. And so they're kind of going back and forth, presenting their cases. And if you jump down to verse seven, and there had been much debate After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to what happened when he went to meet with Cornelius and how that was the introduction of the Gentiles into the church. Verse eight, and God who knows the heart testified them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And so that was significant when Cornelius was saved and the Holy Spirit came and they began to speak in tongues in the same way of the day of Pentecost. And that was God's sign to show that the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers were all equal, all one and the same, that God wasn't playing favorites between the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 10, now, therefore, why do you, sorry, in verse nine, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you putting them under the law? Why are you putting them under Moses? Because we couldn't do it. And we had it. We grew up with it. Now you think they're going to be able to do it. It's not going to work. Verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also, right? So it isn't about circumcision. Circumcision won't save you. It's a physical act, but it's, it's not the answer because if that were the case, now salvation is based on works. It's based on a law. And so Paul writing to the church in Galatia, this is, again, it's a big deal. And so turn over to Galatians chapter five, because again, these Judaizers were coming in and they were trying to push this idea that you're saved by grace, but now you need to live by the law. So in Galatians chapter five, beginning in verse two, Paul writes this, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. Now, he's not saying if you're circumcised, you're not saved. What he's saying is if you're putting your faith in circumcision to save you, then you're not putting your faith in Christ. And that means Christ didn't need to die. Verse three, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You don't pick and choose. And yet that's what we kind of do in the church, don't we? We pick and choose. Well, it's, it's not the civil law, the ceremonial law that we're under, but we're still under the moral law. We're still under the 10 commandments, except we're not under the 10 commandments because one of the 10, the 10th commandment is to honor the Sabbath, which is yesterday on Saturday. Well, how many people honored the Sabbath yesterday? Or how many people were at work cleaning, doing chores, running errands and so forth? So really we go, well, it doesn't really matter what day you, you celebrate that on. So, so really it's only the nine commandments that we're following. It doesn't work that way. If you're going to trust in the law in any way, you have to do all 613 commands perfectly all the time. And as Peter said, our forefathers couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. No one can do it. We're saved by grace. 
Uh, verse three, again, if I t- testify again to every man who receives circumcision, that he's under obligation to keep the whole law, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. It doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. It's not about the law because we're saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. What matters now is how well do you love people? That's what matters. That's what's important he's going on to say. So he goes on even further into chapter six, beginning in verse 11. See what, what, what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. This is like bold, 30 point font, like underline. Like he's making, drawing attention to this, saying, pay attention here. Verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. All they're trying to do is get you circumcised, saying, so that they don't suffer, so that they can be seen as good Jewish people. That's all it is. They don't want to be persecuted by the Jews themselves. So that's why they're pushing the law. Verse 13, for those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The only thing that matters is Jesus and his death on the cross. That's the power. That's what matters. Verse 15, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's the key. That's what matters. It's all about faith in Christ making us new creations, not about whether you're circumcised or not. So that was the battle going on in Acts 15. But here's what's interesting. Acts 16 Right away, verses one to three tells the story where Paul is going to take Timothy to go now and, and, uh, and share the gospel, evangelize to some Jewish people. And Timothy had a Jewish mother, but a Greek father. And so he says, you know, Timothy, if we show up trying to minister to these Jews, all they're, all they're going to think about is, is he circumcised or not? They're not going to be able to hear what you're sharing or what I'm sharing. So you got to get circumcised. And to sort of like this, to those who are under the law, we will meet them under the law. So he takes Timothy and as, a, as an adult male at this point, and he's circumcised in order to reach other people. So again, it's not that the, the circumcision is wrong and you can't do it, but there was a point here that Paul was trying to make. And, and so later on though, there's a group of people that, that now want Titus, who is a Greek born man, to also be circumcised in the same way that Timothy was. So you kind of imagine this, right? Paul, Timothy, Titus are all there and a group of people are demanding Titus be circumcised. And Timothy goes, I feel your pain, Titus. I know, don't worry. They just take a little off the top. It'll be okay, right? And, uh, and so Titus, you know, the eyes get bright and everything. But Paul says, no. I mean, think about it, right? Again, Timothy there just kind of smirking a little bit. And suddenly Paul says, absolutely not. I refuse to let this happen. And now Titus has got the mischievous grin on his face, right? He's like, he's set free of that. Because it's not about circumcision or not. That's not what gets us saved. 
why then this sign of circumcision? What was so important about it in chapter 17? Well, there is something important for us. And, and so I want to unpack it a little bit here. Um, in Romans chapter four, beginning in verse 11, Paul here, he's, he's writing in, in chapter four is all about how we're saved by grace through faith, how Abraham and David were justified apart from the law. And so he's speaking here about Abraham in particular. And in verse 11, he says, and he, Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, the Jews, but all who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham while he had been uncircumcised. So what he's referring to in verse 11 here is that when was Abraham made uh, declared righteous? It wasn't in chapter 17 after he was circumcised. It was in chapter 15, right? It says Abraham believed and God credited him, imputed upon him righteousness, blamelessness to be perfect. That's what God did while uncircumcised in chapter 15. So Paul's making the point, it isn't about following the law. It isn't about being circumcised in order to be made righteous. It was about faith so that Abraham could be the father of all. Remember the multitude of nations that believers don't need to convert to Judaism in order to be saved. But again, that was always the point. Jump with me uh, again. I know we're jumping all over the place, but Deuteronomy chapter 30. So we talked about Deuteronomy. Um, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, but you know, Deuteronomy being a, a book of covenant that where it's the covenant or the law, again, that's literally what the, the, the word Deuteronomy means. And so at the end of, it, of Moses's life, he gathered all of Israel together and he read to them the covenant, the law a second time. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse, eight, verse six, this is now Moses, or God speaking to Moses. And he, he says to them, after they've heard the law and the commands, and they're all said, yes, we'll do it. God says, now listen, they're going to fail. They're going to blow it. And all this stuff's going to happen. But then he says in verse six, moreover, when they come back, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you, and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. See, God was saying, I, I know the problem is you. The problem is your heart. That there's something fundamentally flawed with every single one of us because of Adam's sin in the garden. And he says, in that day when they return, I will circumcise their hearts. We saw that's Ezekiel 36, 25, 27. That's, that's what God's promise when the partial hardening visual is removed, but it's true of us today who've named the name of Jesus. You see, what needs to be circumcised is the heart. And that word circumcised means to, to cut away or to cut off. And so there's something that God is gonna do to our hearts. Jump back to Romans with me, Romans chapter two. 
And again, Paul's going to make the point here about um, who are the true descendants of, of Abraham. And in chapter two, verse 28, he says, for he is not a Jew who is one word outwardly, right? He's not, you're, you're not a Jew because you're circumcised, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly in the heart. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So the circumcision is, is one of our heart. It's one of our identity. So here's what I found interesting in chapter 17, where God introduced circumcision. It's the same time that God changed Abram's name. There's an identity change. And that's what this circumcision is. It's an identity change. It's a change in our heart. It's a change in who we are. And so what this means for us today is at salvation, God performed surgery. God circumcised your heart. And he, he took away that old man, that old self. Turn to Colossians chapter two. This is the important verse this morning. Chapter two, beginning of verse 10. And so Paul's speaking and he says, and in him, speaking of Jesus, you have been made complete. What's another word we might use for complete? Blameless, perfect. Right, Neil? You've been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. Again, speaking of Jesus. And in him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not an outwardly, it's not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now that phrase, that body of flesh, the removal of the body of the flesh is referring to the old self, to the old man, to the sinner you were when you arrived here on planet earth. Right? This is the, a corollary passage, a parallel passage to Romans chapter six, verse six and seven. Knowing this, that our old man, the old self, who you used to be before you knew Jesus was crucified with Christ. The removal of the old self through the circumcision of Christ. It's not talking about when Jesus was eight days old circumcision, but what happened to Jesus on the cross. We know that because it goes on in verse 11, uh, continuing on, and in him, sorry, in verse uh, 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this word baptism is to be immersed into, to be placed into. So you were placed into Christ on the cross, baptized, placed into his death, baptized, placed into his burial, baptized, placed into his resurrection. The old self, the old spirit, the old Jew is crucified and buried and gone and you are born again. It's a new creation. A new creation that is blameless. It's complete. That's who you are today. Right? That's an important concept, an important passage. It's not that you have to do something to become complete. You know, a lot of single people, they, they hear often, well, it wasn't good for a man to be alone. And so as long as you're single, you're just, you're not fully complete. You got to meet someone and then you can be complete. No, 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 that's not how it works. You are complete in Christ as you are today. 
There's nothing you have to do, nothing you have to accomplish, nothing you have to overcome to become complete. You just are. Because who did it? God says, I will. I will be the one to circumcise you. And I've done it. I've, I've removed the body of flesh. I've removed you, the old self, from who you used to be. And the result is Jude 24. Jude's the, the crispy part of your Bible right before Revelation. And um, it's not the whole chapter. There's only one chapter, right? And that's why, so it's verse 24. And Jude writes this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. What does that sound like? Does that sound like, Neil? Sounds like Genesis 17, right? Come, stand before me and be blameless. That's what he said to Abraham. What has he done for you and I? It's the same invitation, but he's already done it. Brian, come stand before me, Jesus says, blameless. Think about that, Mario. When Abraham met God, he prostrated himself. He fell to the ground, right? Nose in the dirt. In fact, if you get about an inch or two below, even better. And God says, no, 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 no. You get to stand in my presence. In fact, if you, if you try to, to humble you, if you try to go, no, 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 I'm not worthy. You know what God will do? He'll pick you up. Isn't that amazing? He'll make you stand in his presence, complete, perfect, and blameless today. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to overcome anything. You just are. That's what he's done because of what Christ has done on the cross. It's finished, right? It's finished. And we need to remember this because the flesh is constantly trying to, to divert us from this reality. The flesh is constantly trying to point out our shortcomings, our failures, our, our inadequacies, our insecurities, and how we don't measure up and we're not good enough. And we go, yeah, yeah I guess that's, that's true. Because we're looking at our behavior. We're not looking at Jesus and what he did anymore. And so we need to be reminded of what God has done. That he's removed the old spirit, the old heart, the no good sinner, crucified and buried, and raised you up as a saint, as a holy one as a righteous, blameless, perfect, complete in Christ. That doesn't mean you never sin. That doesn't mean you never make mistakes. In the same way that Noah was blameless and made mistakes and Abraham was blameless and made mistakes, but they're still blameless. And so are you. But there's a name change. There's an identity change. There's a new desire we have now. And so we love because he's put it in our hearts to love. We forgive because he's put it in our hearts to forgive. We show grace and patience and kindness and gentleness because he's wired us with these new hearts, with a gracious, kind, patient, good heart. That's who we are now. And so when we do those things, really what you're doing is you're living out of your right mind. You're living in congruence and, and according to who you are. But when we don't, when we're bitter, when we're angry, when we, we attack, you're out of your mind. You're temporarily insane because you're acting like a dead person. You're not, who that, you're not who that person is anymore. And so we need to be constantly reminded. 
And, and that's what this circumcision of the heart has done is it's a sign. And that's, that's what it all was. It was just a picture, a sign to what God really wanted to do spiritually and what he's accomplished for us in the cross. All right, we're, we're running out of time here. So we're gonna go through it quickly here, the rest of the, the chapter, and we'll, we'll cover it more next week. But it, beginning in verse 15 now, God's gonna speak to Sarai. And I, I found this really interesting is to Abraham, he just says, I'm gonna change your name and, and you're gonna you know, be a father of multitude of nations and kings are gonna come from you. And, and, and he just said, this is what I'm gonna do. But to, to Sarai, he says, I will bless her. Speaking to Abraham, Abraham now, because I will bless Sarai. Oh, that, that was beautiful to me. It showed the heart that God has towards women. I will bless her. Because again, she struggled, she suffered. She's 89 years old, never had a child. Last 13 years, she's seen her rival raise the son who Abram loves. He said, I'm gonna bless her. I'm gonna change her name from Sarai, which means princess, to Sarah, which means a princess of a multitude. And he gives her the same promises that he gives Abraham, that a multitude of nations will come from her, that kings will come from her, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and all the other kings of Israel. And most importantly, King Jesus will come from her because she will have a son. She will have her own son. She'll give birth to a son and that son's name will be Isaac. And so God blesses her. There's more to that story, but we'll cover that next week. Um, but let's, let's wrap up quickly here because it says in verse 22 that after God spoke all these things, again, first about what I will do with my covenant to Abraham, what your responsibility, which is circumcision, how I will bless Sarah, which is all the same things that he gave to Abraham. He leaves, he departs, which again shows that it was a, a physical God there in front of Abraham. And it says in verse 23, in that day, Abraham... Ishmael and all the men of his household, whether they were bought or born in his household, all of them were circumcised. Immediate obedience to what God asked them to do. And so I pondered that story because whenever you read the scripture, it's helpful to imagine like that was a real story. Those are real people. And so I began to imagine if I was one of those men, and it raised more questions than answers. It really did. Like, like, for example, how did the men react to this news? Right? Everyone, my name's no longer Abram, it's Abraham, and we're all getting a haircut. Right? We're all getting a little cut. Like, were they kind of, did they put up a fight? Um, who performed all of these surgeries? Like, was it just, was it just one person and they all lined up? Because there's hundreds of them at this point. Right? I mean, there's probably over 500 men that need to be circumcised that day. So it was just like an assembly line or was it sort of like pair up, grab a partner, right? Which, which if it was, you find out who you trust in a hurry, right? Hey, can I be your partner? No, 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 no. Are you, no, no. Hey, it's just a little off the top. No, 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 no. Well, what was it like afterwards? Like, especially if they paired up, could they look each other in the eye afterwards, <laughs> right? Um, were, were they just all like, just in pain? Like, cause there's no frozen peas, right? So how are they coping? What are the women doing? I'm really curious about that one. Are they all kind of snickering, laughing? Oh, it's the man cold sort of idea. Like what, what was it like there? 
And here's another question, again, no answers. Why is the Hebrew word for foreskin feminine? I don't understand. Like, lots of questions. We should close in prayer. All right, Lord Jesus. Lord, we, uh, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm amazed the plan you had and what you were unveiling through the life of Abraham and what it means to us today as descendants of Abraham by faith that we've entered into the same covenant and the sign of covenant for Abraham was a physical circumcision, but it was only pointing to a spiritual reality, which was what you accomplished in our hearts at salvation, where you, you circumcised our hearts when we were crucified with you, buried with you to remove the sinner, remove the stain, remove the evil to give us a new heart that is blameless, that is complete, that is perfect, that is righteous, that is holy, that we are today saints, new creations made in your likeness. That's who we are right now. And we get to, as you promised or commanded Abraham, to stand before you in that state of blamelessness. I pray, Lord, that we remember that so that we could run to you, that we could trust you and experience life in you as you intend. We thank you for your love. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.